we are living in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. <laughs> Ambiguity has pretty much become the religion of the land. And sexual freedom has become something that people would almost die for. And this is the, the deception of our historical epoch, and it's this, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. But since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. But this idolatry of sexual freedom is on a collision course with the gospel, as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. I was not raised in a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional Asian values. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> I had the secret that I'd get hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man. I moved from Chicago, where I'm from, down to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And it was there, I, after my first year, I returned home and broke the news to my parents. But amazingly, God used that crisis to bring my mother to faith and then my father to faith. While I went in the opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with their crazy religion. And I, unfortunately, spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. Unfortunately, that is part of my story. And when I'm telling you my story, I'm just telling you my story, but I also need to be honest about telling you my story and tell you all those aspects but I also need to remind you that when you encounter the living Jesus Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to, to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So I moved from, from Louisville to Atlanta. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. They tried to reach out to me, love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. You know, the interesting thing is, they weren't telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that 
was enough to be offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to pick up their friends to pick them up. But before my father left, he wanted to give me something. And it was his very first Bible. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. But he left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with them and their new religion. You see, we hear the narrative today that Christian parents, evangelical, Bible-believing, born-again Christian parents are unable to love their gay children. And it's until you shed those ancient teachings and take on a more progressive teaching that you're able to love your gay children. But I had the exact opposite experience. My mother and father were not believers in Christ. They were atheists. They couldn't love me, and they rejected me. It wasn't until they became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that they knew they could do nothing other than to the lo- and love me as God loved them while they were powerless, while they were still sinners, while we were, they were his enemies. You see, after that visit, it was more than obvious that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She spent hours every single morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalence of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, 
son, are you okay? No condemnation, no condemn, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place (laughs) compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can. And as I looked at this trash can, I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking, this is the answer to my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. 
And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a previous sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. I shuffle into her office. She shut the door behind me, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read, H-I-V positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than ten years to life that I was facing. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I looked up at the cold metal bunk above me. Someone had scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plan that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, if God could have a plan for rebellious Israel in exile, he could have a plan for me in prison. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies, obviously drugs. Within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. 
And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for anything that might justify a same-sex, a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship, how by freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires, whether sexual or romantic, to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence pass, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that certainly is true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have become a heterosexual, which meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality, right direction, too broad, too general. That's not the goal. Besides, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God said, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, not the right goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. Holiness is the only precise, accurate, and unambiguous goal. Heterosexuality is too general. That includes sinful behavior. Holiness is the goal. Because I realize that the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or not whether I'm, you know, tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. Change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy, even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. 
As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three, year, three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on to ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home, collected my parents, told them God's calling me to ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. Tore open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August of 2001, and I had, uh, and so imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, a gay son's journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote My mother wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to talk from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent and prodigal. And this book now is actually being used as a textbook in Christian high schools because our youth are being flooded and inundated with resources on sexuality and an adults we oftentimes, as a church, we oftentimes sit back and do nothing. Silence is no longer an option. My newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, helps us to understand what is God's yes. Because oftentimes when we talk about biblical sexuality, it's usually something like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And those are important messages, but we can't build a Christian life on God's no. What is God's Yes. And God's yes when it comes to sexuality is chastity in singleness or faithfulness in biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And that is good news for all. So how do we do a better job at communicating this truth about the joy and the goodness and the gift of biblical sexuality? because we have not done a good job. We have a pretty bad reputation when it comes to how we engage on this topic, and in general. There's a book that's called Unchristian, written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, and they ask young Americans, what do you think about Christians? And by far, it was all negative. And at the very top, we are viewed to be, above everything else, to be anti Homosexual. Look at those numbers. 91% of those not raised in the church, 80%, 8 out of 10 of our youth, age 16 to 29, believe that we ourselves are, and note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, but we're viewed to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not against anyone. It's for people, 
turning from their sins, putting their faith in Christ, but it's for people, and so should we be for people. So how can we do a better job at engaging on this topic? If you like my notes, and I would, I, I would strongly suggest you scan this QR code, and we're going to go pretty fast through this with the short amount of time we have left. But how do we do a better job at not just engaging on this topic, but sharing the love of Christ, sharing the gospel that recognizes that it's not just those in the gay community that are sinners. We all are sinners. We all must submit and repent and surrender our whole lives to him, not just parts of our aspects, but our whole lives to him, including our sexuality. So how do we do that? Well, I'm going to center my talk around four main points. And the first point has to do with our attitude. Before we do anything else, we need to make sure that we ourselves, that we're convicted about our own sin. Because when I lived as a gay man years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for those in the gay community. Yes, same-sex relationships are sinful, but it's not the worst sin. And yet, oftentimes, we treat it as if it were. He might say, well, the Bible says it's an abomination. And actually, you're right. It is an abomination. But you know what else the Bible calls an abomination? If you read Proverbs chapter 6, it says that six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. You know what's listed there? Things like pride, causing dissension, and lying. So when was the last time your friend was a little bit prideful and you say, you are abomination? <laughs> Maybe we should. And when we do that, we wouldn't be trivializing sin that really grieves God's heart. So our sin is just as odious in God's eyes than someone else's sin because at the end of the day, I want people to know Christ, but that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. So humility, conviction is a great place to start. Second, we need to be consistent. Consistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What is your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? And there's this huge balance today between marriage and singleness, where marriage is really, really good and singleness is really, really bad. And I think this is such an important thing because actually I'm hearing from our youth and young adults that are leaving the church in droves mainly because of our view on homosexuality. And what's pushing them in their direction? And one of those reasons is because they believe that it is unfair it's unfair for God to demand us to be single. So we have this distorted view of a biblical understanding of singleness. We have an anemic theology of singleness, or actually a completely absent theology of singleness, where we treat singleness to be equivalent to loneliness. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with you know, my gay friend a lot? Because my gay friends tell me what you're saying is you want me to be lonely for the rest of my life. And they're equating singleness with loneliness. But I know that they're not the same thing. You know why? Because I actually know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. <laughs> so marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That is the cure to loneliness and not another human being. So we have to recognize the importance. Marriage is good, but we can't view it as the only path to happiness or even wholeness. Marriage does not make you whole. Can I say that again? Marriage does not make you whole. Jesus does. Jesus does. I tell my students at Moody Bridal Institute, 
I tell them marriage does not make you whole, but actually, before you become one, be whole. Before you become one in marriage, be whole in Christ, because you cannot become whole. When people try to become whole in marriage, instead, you know what happens? They don't become whole. They become a codependent mess. We have to recognize the goodness of marriage, but we cannot idolize it. Because let me tell you, one of the most deceptive forms of idolatry is when we worship something good. Good things weren't meant to be worshipped. We must lift up the beauty of marriage, but I think we've done that at the expense of singleness. As we're fighting to communicate what biblical marriage looks like, what Jesus communicates. I mean, if, if the best apologetic for marriage between a man and woman comes from the lips of Jesus, Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, when he was questioned about divorce, and he not only answered them and schooled them about divorce, but he actually gave the foundation for marriage, which is found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In the beginning, created made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus was, was basically saying male and female complementarity is essential for marriage. But we've denigrated singleness to be almost like a consolation prize. I'm sorry you're single. I have a missionary friend who spent five years in China. She went there single, came back single. When she was back in the U.S. on furlough, she saw several of her friends that she hadn't seen in a while. And when they got together, they would ask her similar questions like, tell me about China, tell me about your future ministry plans, and then personal things like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time, she would just honestly say, no, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded to her? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse. But do we not treat it like it is? We treat it like the unbearable burden that we need to be fixed of. That's why we say, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. Singleness is not something to be fixed, because if it were, then Jesus needed to be fixed. By having an improper view of singleness, we then have a deficient Christology. Let me say it again. By having a deficient theology of singleness, we then have a deficient Christology. We have to recognize what the Word of God says. And you know in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, talking about not only marriage and singleness. And in this very interesting chapter, Paul not only calls singleness good in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, but he actually calls it a gift, truly a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, a gift. But let me give you some advice for those in this room that are no longer single and you're married. Don't keep reminding your Christian single friends that this is a gift. Because I know very few Christian singles that actually, you know, relish, you know, like that verse. You know, I don't know anyone that's like, yeah, that's my life verse, you know, sincerely, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. <laughs> it's usually the opposite. Like, I don't know what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians. It's hard being single. I'm a single man. I'm going to be 50 this, this year. I've never been married, and it's not easy being single. But I've spoken to uh, some married people, and I hear that marriage can be difficult at times. But along with those difficulties also come what? Blessings. In the same way, singleness certainly has challenges. 
but there are also some blessings. Why is it then as a church we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? See how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical? I mean, we can all say that marriage is a gift. Yay, hallelujah. But when it comes to singleness, we don't, we don't agree with the word of God that it's that a gift. Instead, you know what most of us say? We say singleness, whew, it's a calling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like not anyone can be single. You have to like make sure you're either like Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but many other superheroes are single. And their love interest is their weakness. You know, no wonder why our youth are so confused about marriage and singleness. And the majority of my Christian friends are married, and they're happily married, but they tell me a secret about marriage, that it takes work. Loving yourself, that's not easy. Paul in Ephesians 5 calls husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How? By giving up your life for her. So husbands, lay your life down for your wives. Amen, ladies? Like, you can do this now. So actually, I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that nearly impossible calling. So do you know what I say, tongue-in-cheek, about marriage? I say marriage, that's a calling, seriously. (laughs) Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not at all saying that now singleness is better than marriage. I'm simply looking at the full counsel of God and recognizing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one over against the other. Just because marriage is the norm, that does not make singleness bad. Are you following me? I'm not at all saying that we should not get married. Most will marriage, and marriage is good, but it's not the best. I wrote something in response with my good friend, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, in 2015, after the Obergefell decision, when five Supreme Court justices legalized same-sex marriage for the whole United States. And we wrote in and called it something greater than marriage. Marriage is good, but there's something greater than marriage. And that's a relationship with God. So we need to recognize the goodness of both singleness and marriage. Because we're not ready to address this issue of sexuality until we first redeem singleness. So what is God's standard for sexuality? Many say, well, it's heterosexuality. That's what the Bible says. But heterosexuality includes sinful behavior. If I was sleeping with half a dozen women, that's heterosexual. If I was cheating with my wife with another woman, that's heterosexual. If I was an unmarried man living with my girlfriend, we have a couple children together, that's heterosexual, but all sinful in God's eyes. God would never use a category that actually includes sin. And we cannot be ambiguous and as unclear and general and broad anymore. We have to be laser-sharp focused. So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, what is it? It's holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? Reading through the full counsel of God, two paths. Two paths, chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. If you're single, be abstinent. If you're married, and when I say marriage, I'm using Jesus' definition of marriage, grounded in, tr- in creation, marriage between a man and woman. Be faithful to your spouse. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Because we think change is, you know, going from gay to straight. No. Or we think change is no longer having temptations. But do we apply that same principle to any other struggle? Say I have a friend that was a drunk, comes to Christ, but he still admits after years of sobriety that he still has this urge to drink, but he doesn't. Would we then tell him you haven't been changed? 
I hope not, because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh daily and says yes to Christ. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. So we need to be convicted, consistent, and then third, we need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at Moody for over a dozen years, and I have these students that confide with me that they're wrestling with their sexuality. And many of them don't feel like the church is a safe place, and I, be, and I really believe the church should be the safest place in the world. So how do we be a more safe and compassionate place? Well, first, we need to just expect that this is present here in the body of Christ, in our pews, in our own churches, in our small groups, not, not surprised. And I still get that people surprised. You know, man, I just, my best friend just told me he's wrestling with his sexuality, and I don't know how that happened. He came from a good home. He has Christian parents. He was even homeschooled. And I'm like, wait, are you really saying that if someone, you know, comes from a good, good parents, Christian home, they've been homeschooled, that they're exempt from struggling with sin? Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room, I bet there's probably maybe just a small handful of you that's struggling with sin. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you or have you stand out, right? I mean, let's be real. We're all wrestling with sin. What's the body of Christ? A group of you who've got it all together, don't have any problems. We meet once a week, sing kumbaya, is that what we are? Or is the body of Christ people who know that we are broken and we need Christ. I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Christ. Anyone else out there can relate to that in any way, shape, or form. So let's do that. Just find our solidarity in our need for Christ. Second, know your position. And when I say position, this is our main takeaway. It's not that simply this is sin. My main takeaway is that people would know the risen Lord Jesus and fully surrender their entire lives to him, everything to him. Third, Maybe you have a friend who's wrestling with this, and instead of asking them and bringing it up, because that's a bit awkward, hey, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. Instead, give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God that he put you in my life, and nothing can change that. You've just created this, this safe space and invited them in it. Fourth, we need to really have zero tolerance on the gay jokes and the bullying. There's nothing Christ-like about making fun of someone else. Lastly, we need to be compassionate. And this is compassionate in, uh, I'm sorry, lastly, we need to be complete. Complete in what we say, we focus upon God's truth because it's a truth that sets us free. So what is God's truth? It's easy. Oh, it's a sin, people will say. But when that's all we say, that's the same thing as giving someone a one spiritual law track. You guys heard of the four spiritual laws? This is one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, sorry. In case you didn't know that's not good news, that's bad news. But that's the only message we've been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we haven't been giving them the good news. We've been telling them bad news. We have been telling the complete truth. We have only been telling them an incomplete truth. And when you tell someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He lists 10 sins, and sometimes people zero in on those two things that focus upon homosexual behavior and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God, and they conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. But I'm so glad Paul goes on to say this, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Our message has to be redemptive. You know, my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. 
So how do we share Christ and minister well? I'm going to just give some practical things here before we close. How do we minister Christians wrestling with same-sex attractions, know that this is not God's will? Let's say someone opens up to you next week or later this month. How would you respond? First, thank them for sharing with you. It means a lot that they opened up to you. Second, tell them that they're not alone because many times people think that no one will ever understand them. And though you might not know exactly what they're going through, but if you just simply tell them, I'm committed to walk with you to Jesus. Third, and this could be the most important part here, our identity in Christ. I don't know of any other sin where we've conflated it with personhood. I think we should even no longer ourselves use the term gay and straight to define people. More accurately, gay and straight, homosexual, heterosexual, define our feelings and our behaviors. And let me remind you, our feelings and behaviors don't define who we are. Sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these promises because following Christ, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Fifth, don't focus on just the externals because we want to see change from the inside out. Sixth, strengthen relationships in the body of Christ. I need more than anything else Christ and the body of Christ. So let us live as the family of God. So how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? Many who don't know Christ are believing a false gospel. Well, first, this is what you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. Not a good way to win people to Christ. Don't use these two words, lifestyle or choice. I never used those words as a gay man because I had the wrong identity. Third, don't say love the sin or hate the sin. Just do it. Don't say it. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. It's okay to not answer their question. Jesus didn't answer every person's question. He sometimes was silent. He sometimes answered a question with a question. Sometimes he gave an answer, but just to a different question, the more important question. So what should you do? Pray. Pray and fast to the only God who can soften a hardened heart. Listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. And I know people will ask, but... Wouldn't I be condoning their sin? But think about this. Last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. <laughs> Nothing new. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time for God to work on a heart. Lastly, be transparent. Share what God is doing your, in your life. Live the gospel before you preach the gospel. You know, because I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out of my parents' lives. I didn't leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me they were sinful. No, I left it because they showed me something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, a job, career, no matter what they're holding to, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but following Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Help us, Lord, where we're at, shine the light of Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.